Welcome to this edition of Back to Basics with Pastor Brian Broderson. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. But as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. And so here in Joel, this beautiful reminder of who God is and and what he's like. Today on Back to Basics, Pastor Brian continues his study through the books of the Old Testament prophets. Join us as Pastor Brian resumes his teaching on the book of Joel. Now, here's Pastor Brian. Isn't it so often the first thing we think about when we think of God? We think God's mad at us all the time. We think God is just waiting to judge us. We think, you know, if we've slipped up in any way, surely we're out of favor with God, and it's just a matter of time before he wipes us out. And we just have to take our Bible seriously and realize that that is not true. God is always inviting us to come back. He's always inviting us to turn. But man, you know, the devil is crafty. And he comes along and he capitalizes on our failures. And then he comes in and he can build a very convincing case of why God is finished with us. And if we don't recognize that that's part of what he does, because he can be so convincing, we end up thinking that it's actually God who's saying this to us. And so we just give up, we despair. We sink into the pit of condemnation, but it's not true. And here we see again, the Lord inviting, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, weeping and mourning. And verse 13, rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. Who knows? He may turn and relent and leave behind a blessing. Now, when the prophet says, rend your heart, not your garments, what what he's calling for is exactly what he said in the previous verse. Return to me with all your heart. So, you know, rending the garments, tearing your garments was an outward sign of, it was was like confession. It was calling out to God and in repentance. So the people would repent in this very demonstrative way by, by tearing their garments. And that was to show that they were sincere, but evidently it was possible to go through all of that emotionally, but not have it really penetrate deep to the heart. And so the call is to rend your heart. Don't just go through the motions. Don't just, you know, have this this momentary remorse or regret or sorrow for your behavior Make this a real, deep repentance. Rend your hearts, not your garment. 
return to the Lord, your God. And here it is. For he is gracious and compassionate and slow to anger and abounding in love. This is the most oft-repeated description of God in the Old Testament. Isn't that amazing? Because what do most people say about the Old Testament? Oh, the Old Testament, man, that's a God of wrath. I mean, people have taken that view so far as to deny that the God of the Old Testament was the same God as the God of the New Testament. There have been people who have held to a theological position that the Old Testament God was a tribal God for Israel, was an angry God, was a wrathful God. But thank God he's not the real God. The real God is Jesus and, you know, his father. But it seems clear to me from the New Testament that Jesus (laughs) believed that the God of the Old Testament was his father. So when people insist that the God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath, here's what you know. They haven't really read the Old Testament. They haven't really dug down deep into it. They haven't really looked at it in a serious fashion. It's just been a cursory sort of a glimpse of it. And you see a few things here and there and think, oh God, he's, he's always angry. He's, he's, he just wants to judge the people all the time. That's not true. This is how God revealed himself. And this, this revelation first came in Exodus chapter 33, 34, where Moses was asking God to show him who he really was. Moses is like, if I found favor in your sight, Lord, show me your glory. God says, Moses, you can't see my glory because no one can see me and live. But God put him in the cleft of the rock and he passed by him. And as the Lord passed by Moses there in the cleft of the rock, he saw his glory that trailed behind him. And the message that came was the Lord, which is Yahweh, Yahweh Elohim. He is all of the things that are repeated right here. He is gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. That was the revelation of God to Moses. And like I said, this is repeated over and over again in the Old Testament. Psalm 103 is the one that immediately comes to mind. A beautiful picture there of as a father pities or has compassion upon his children, so the Lord has compassion upon those who fear him. He knows our frame. He remembers how feeble we are. He remembers that we are just dust. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. But as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. And so here in Joel, this beautiful reminder of who God is and and what he's like. Verse 15, blow the trumpet in Zion, declare a holy fast, call a sacred assembly, gather the people, consecrate the assembly, bring together the elders, gather the children, those nursing at the breast, let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Let the priest who minister before the Lord weep 
between the portico and the altar. Let them say, spare your people, Lord. Do make your inheritance or do not make your inheritance an object of scorn, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? So we see just crying out to God, asking God for mercy in the judgment that will come. And so verse 18, verse 18 in the NIV and the NASB, the New American Standard, read like this. I'm reading the NIV. Then the Lord was jealous for his land and took pity on his people. But most agree that this is not in the past tense, but it is, then the Lord will be jealous for his land. So looking forward to the time of the judgment that's coming, rather than looking past at something that's already taken place. He, he will be jealous for his land and, and he will take pity on his people. And the Lord replied, replied to, to them, I am sending you grain, new wine and olive oil, enough to satisfy you fully. Never again will I make you an object of scorn to the nations. Now, listen to this. This is interesting. Verse 20, I will drive the northern horde far from pushing into the parched and barren land. Now, remember when we studied Ezekiel. Maybe you remember Ezekiel 38 and 39. And there's this vast army that comes against Israel. And it very specifically tells us numerous times that they come from the northern region. And so this is, as we look at this again, this seems to be pointing to the same events that Ezekiel prophesied that are yet future. So I will drive the northern horde far from you, pushing it into the parts and barren land. Its eastern ranks will drown in the Dead Sea and its western ranks in the Mediterranean Sea. So that's, again, showing the same kind of picture that we have in Ezekiel, that there are many nations that are coming together, led by this northern group, but coming from the south, coming from the west. And so to me, it seems to fit perfectly with the, the picture that we have of the battle that Ezekiel describes, which is yet future, which when I taught that, uh, maybe you remember, I said that I believe that that isn't, a, that's the Old Testament description. Uh, the battle, it's called the Battle of Gog and Magog. It's the Old Testament description of what we know in the New Testament as the the. Battle of Armageddon. We call it the Battle of Armageddon. The New Testament never actually calls it that. But it, Armageddon is used, but it's not called the Battle of Armageddon. So, surely he has done great things. Do not be afraid, land of Judah. Be glad and rejoice. Surely the Lord has done great things. Do not be afraid, you wild animals, for the pastures and the wilderness are becoming green. The trees are bearing their fruit. The fig tree and the vine yield their riches. Be glad, people of Zion. Rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you the autumn rains because he is faithful. He sends you abundant showers, both autumn and spring rains, as before 
The threshing floors will be filled with grain. The vats will overflow with new wine and oil. So this is the promise of the blessing that God will ultimately bring upon them after the time of judgment. And I will repay you for the years the locust have eaten, the great locust and the young locust and the other locust and the locust swarm, my great army that I sent among you. So, you know, you, you have perhaps heard this, perhaps you used this passage in reference even to yourself. Uh, you know, sometimes people will say when they look at their lives and maybe they've just had, you know, a series of difficulties and, you know, years that just seem like the years that the locust has eaten. You know, sometimes people who, you know, they come to faith at a certain point, they follow Jesus for a season, they drift away, they live out in the world, they make a mess of everything, their lives are a wreck, and then God in his mercy restores them. But they've got these years that the locust have eaten, so to speak. And here's the promise that God says, I will repay you. I will restore to you, is another translation, the years that the locusts have eaten. And so, I mean, obviously the, the primary application is to Israel in the future, but I think because God is so good and he's so gracious, we can expect some amount of restoration even from the years of wreckage that God in his mercy, he, he even patches some of that stuff up. You know, not always, not necessarily entirely, but when we get our lives right with God, we just set ourselves up for blessing because that's who God is. And he can go back and, you know, we look at all that stuff and we look at the wreckage and the mess and we can just say, God, could you do something with that? Could you have mercy? Could you, can you restore? And he does quite often. So he refers to this as, as his army that he sent in judgment upon them. You will have plenty to eat until you are full. You will praise the name of the Lord your God who has worked wonders for you. Never again will my people be ashamed. Then you will know that I am in Israel, that I am the Lord your God and that there is no other. Never again will my people be shamed. So obviously this is pointing out, as we said, to the distant future. That time when God brings Israel back and completely restores them. Now, Verse 28, this is the passage we've been waiting to get to. And afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming 
of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How many of you have heard this passage before? (laughs) How many of you know where else it is found in your Bible? Acts chapter 2. That's right, Acts chapter 2. So remember what happened, what's recorded there in Acts chapter 2? So it's the day of Pentecost. It says the day of Pentecost has fully come. And the disciples were gathered together in this upper room. And suddenly there was the sound of this rushing, this mighty wind that blows through. And the disciples there are all filled with the Spirit. And they begin to praise God in other languages. And they go out into the street. And there they are praising God in these languages that they don't know. And the people gather and they are asking the question, what is going on? What, what is this? And someone from the crowd shouts out and says, oh, these guys are drunk. And Peter speaks up and he says, no, these are not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. Wow. Wow. So Peter interprets what's happening with this outpouring of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost with the prophecy that we just read here that Joel gave. Now, here's the question. How could Peter do that? Because this prophecy is clearly about the end, right? I will show wonders in the heaven on on the earth, blood and fire, billows of smoke, the sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Well, here's why Peter pointed to this passage because this was the beginning of the end of man's reign and the beginning of the reign of Christ upon the earth that will culminate in the future with the blood, the fire, the billows of smoke and the the dreadful day of the Lord But what we need to remember is that this was the the day of Pentecost and the outpouring of the Spirit was the day that really the last days began. So, you know, we use the term the last days and, and we used it in a sense that is not totally accurate biblically because we've only used it to refer quite often to the time we're living in now. You know, how many times do you hear people say, man, these are the last days. But guess what? The New Testament writers, they said these are the last days. The last days began with the day of Pentecost. And the last days means this last era in human history where you have now this overlap You still have the kingdoms of this world, the kingdoms of men, but now the kingdom of God has invaded. The kingdom of God has entered into this world. And one day, as Revelation tells us in the 11th chapter, the kingdoms of this world will become entirely the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Messiah. 
and he will reign forever and ever. But it started on this day and it started with this outpouring and this empowering of the Holy Spirit. But here's the interesting thing. When Peter quotes Joel here, Peter says that the things that are described, daughters prophesying, old men dreaming dreams, young men seeing visions on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. What what Peter says is this is going to happen all the way till everything is fulfilled. So in other words, what happened at Pentecost is to be the experience of the church throughout its entire age. So throughout the entire age of the church, we are to expect the Spirit to be poured out. So, you know, this is one of the reasons why I'm hopeful that there's still an outpouring of the Spirit. I've heard lots of people say there's no future outpouring of the Spirit. Um, You know, there is a theory by some that um, the apostasy is ultimately coming. Uh, Everybody's going to fall away. And so those who, you know, hold real strong to that particular position, they don't have any room for a future outpouring of the Spirit. But think about it. In the last days, I will pour out my spirit. If he poured his spirit out at the beginning of the last days, why wouldn't we expect him to pour his spirit out at the, what could be the end of the last days? But, you know, the fact of the matter is, all throughout these past 2,000 years, there have been these kinds of outpourings of the Spirit, like what happened at Pentecost. Pentecost was extraordinary. There was nothing ever like it ever in history. It was unique, but it is no longer unique. It has been repeated over and over again. And any time in history where you find a a time or a place where large numbers of people are brought to faith and God's church is revitalized and um, the world is awakened to the reality of the gospel, what you're finding is a repeat in a sense of what happened at Pentecost. You're, you're finding a repeat of what Joel prophesied, that this, is, this would be the thing that would happen all throughout this age of the church. And so if we believe these are the last days, if we believe the Lord's coming is soon, then I think that we should actually believe and anticipate a great outpouring of the Spirit because that's what the Scripture says. the month of December, Back to Basics Radio is offering a book titled, Is Christmas Unbelievable? Four Questions Everyone Should Ask About the World's Most Famous Story by Rebecca McLaughlin. 
It's easy for the holiday season to draw our attention to shopping, parties, programs, and events, while the Christmas story is relegated to the statue of a myth or fairy tale for children. But is the Christmas story actually grounded in history? Well, in her book, Is Christmas Unbelievable? Four Questions Everyone Should Ask About the World's Most Famous Story, Rebecca McLaughlin tackles four basic questions surrounding Christmas. She deals with the questions surrounding if Jesus was a historical figure, if we can take seriously the historical accounts of the gospel, and if the virgin birth can actually be believed, and why it all matters. If you know a person who is skeptical that the Christmas story is true, or if you are a skeptic yourself, we encourage you to call us right now at 1-800-733-6443 or visit us online at backtobasicsradio.com to order Is Christmas Unbelievable? Four Questions Everyone Should Ask About the World's Most Famous Story by Rebecca McLaughlin. And when you give a gift to Back to Basics, we'll send you the book as our way to say thank you. We do appreciate your generous support of this ministry. We'd also like to remind you that all of our other resources are waiting for you at backtobasicsradio.com or by calling our request line at 1-800-733-6443. That's 1-800-733-6443. Our desire is to encourage you in your daily walk with God. We'll continue tomorrow with more valuable insights from Pastor Brian as we study together in the book of Hosea. Back to Basics is the preaching and teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California.